cruelty, callous indifference to or pleasure in causing pain and suffering. Remember that, my friends. Callous indifference or pleasure in causing pain and suffering. Never a necessary action or a byproduct of the greater good. No. Cruelty is a villainous vine and it climbs over things that are beautiful and strong. Cruelty is like ivy on a tree. It attaches itself with tiny sucking tendrils that go unnoticed at first. But before you know it, bursts of new leaves have fanned out and the tendrils, now not so tiny, have penetrated the tree's bark. The tree grows slowly weaker, but it does not die. For what use is a dead host to hungry parasites? Death would be a welcome alternative, but cruelty has other plans, and so too does the ivy. The tree will stay standing, but the ivy takes over. Bright emerald green leaves arranged everywhere just so. From the outside, it looks like a perfect example of nature's harmony. Inside though, the tree suffers. The tendrils create holes in the bark through which the tree's sap leaks out like tears. Sugar ants come in droves to feed on its grief. Rot weakens its limbs. On some trees, this process smells sickeningly sweet if you get too close. Like death. The ivy will wind around and around, its umbrella-like leaves slowly blocking the tree's sunlight. As it grows, those tiny little tendrils multiply at a furious pace, drinking in all the nutrients the tree so desperately needs. The tree will become weak and pliable. When the wind howls, its branches will simply surrender to the storm. But still, the ivy grows, relentless in its pursuit of the exhausted tree. Ivy can grow on a tree for centuries. Through cruelty, not murder, it thrives. Passersby will remark on the beauty of the ivy-covered tree. It looks like history in plant form, a relic of a time gone by, a magical window into the past. People love ivy-covered trees, but they have no idea what's happening while they stand by and watch. Eventually, the tree will surrender, strangled by the ivy's vines, collapsing under its weight, and then a curious thing will happen. The ivy will simply crawl on to the next surface it finds. It might be a tree, it might be a fence, it might be the side of a building, and therein lies the biggest cruelty of all. You see, ivy grows from the ground. It can survive perfectly well on its own. It never needed that tree to survive. It just liked hurting it. Humans are also unimaginably cruel, but unlike ivy, we have intention. We can stop whenever we want, but some of us choose not to. 
This is what makes us a vessel filled with terrifying potential. So remember, what you may see as charming or a window to the past, or even for the greater good, can behind closed doors be as painful and destructive as that lovely ivy on a tree. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. I just love it. Ooh. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, Fiends. Welcome to the second half of our New Orleans adventure. So last week we heard Leslie's telling of the unbelievably intricate story of the Axeman murders. I That's still blowing my mind. <laughs> I can't believe how misrepresented that story is. Yeah. I can't believe how many people died. I can't believe it's not more widely known. I know. It felt it felt strange that I covered it because it seemed like a huge one that Holly would cover. I was <laughs> so glad you did because, again, this I was telling you this um, in our host mortem for this. So if you're a patron, you can hear us talk about this more on our video after show, host mortem. So Yay. be a patron. Anywho, we were talking about it and, like, I this is a case I had no familiarity with in the past and I probably have more true crime knowledge than your average bear. So <laughs> I guess Perfect. bears have none. Your average citizen. Yes. There I is. know a lot of cases. I fixate on these kind of things and I have read so many things. And uh, I had never heard of this guy until he was involved in the storyline on American Horror Story Coven. And yeah. then I listened to like a couple other podcasts on him, but I had no background in this case at all. Mm-hmm. So. And what's funny is, is that, I mean, I only watched Coven once, mm -hmm. but I didn't connect them. Like, I didn't think of I the I could Axemen. see why, yeah. I guess, because they kind of make him out to be something, like, very sexy and mysterious. And, like, it's not necessarily what he was. Yeah. I would love, I think I need to go back and watch that season again now. <laughs> I guess we have to. It's uh, for if research. we have to. It's one of my favorites anyway. Plus, like, I wonder how many details from the actual case are in there, and we just didn't notice it, because why would we, you right. know? We didn't know it then. Interesting. Mm. Huh. That'll be a fun project for our, right. the free time we don't have. <laughs> <laughs> so this week, you get to hear my treatment of the visceral horrors orchestrated and carried out by late 19th century socialite Delphine LaLaurie. Delphine is the stuff of nightmares and legends, like, quite literally. And many people have come to associate her with using blood as a beauty treatment, though that part of her story isn't actually true. It has just somehow made its way in there over the years. But you know what? She just probably never heard about the youth-restoring properties of, um, what's that called again? Um, hmm. That thing we want all the time. Oh, gosh. Validation. I thought you were going to sing it. Validation. <laughs> there it is. I love how I say it every week, and half the time, it genuinely takes you by surprise, and you have to be like, what? what is that? 
What are we talking about? What? Where can I get that? I oh would like God. some. Yeah. <laughs> Just think, all she needed to do was up her rating on Apple Podcasts a little, and voila. Eternal youth and beauty. Confused? I'll go on. It's too late for Delphine, but that's fine because she was a total nightmare. But fortunately, it's not too late for us, and you, our dear fiends, can help with our eternal youth and beauty. Simply head on over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only thing that can move this podcast forward. And bonus, if you're a patron and get to see our faces every week, they'll be a lot nicer to look at if they're glowing with fresh validation. Validation. Perfect. Chimes. In my head, they go off every time. Yeah. And that's enough for me. <laughs> Confused again? I'll go once some more. <laughs> if you want even more We Would Be Dead in Your Life, you can support us over on Patreon, where for just a few dollars a month, you'll get access to all kinds of extra content, such as all of the episodes of our additional podcast, 30-minute horror movies, extra mini-sodes and interviews, our weekly video after show, Host Mortem. You'll also get opportunities to Zoom with the two of us. I know that's coming up. We do like a little green room before our live shows, mm -hmm. and we'll be able to talk to some of our patrons live. You get a little gifty from us, um, the opportunity to vote on future episodes and live shows, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all of that is a little too much for you, you can simply share anything on our social media to your social media, post about your favorite episode, let us know when you're listening, like or comment on literally anything we post. Join our super fun Facebook group, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell your ghost tour guide. There's like only one name you and I would ever choose for this, but I'm going to ask you anyway because I ask every week, what's our ghost tour guide's name? Tom. Tom the tour guide, who we are like his, his secretly his biggest fans. Tom the tour guide. Yeah. That's it. Mm -hmm. From Salem, Massachusetts. From Salem. We love Tom's <laughs> tours. He's the best. He does not know us at all and would probably be very creeped out by the fact that we talk about him. Yeah. Oh, I love Tom. It's all complimentary, though. We just think he's delightful. Um, anyway, then your friends and Tom can become fiends and we can all hang out together, which is our goal, ultimately. That is. That's the only reason we started this podcast. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Uh, lastly, the votes are in, and our live-streamed Campfire Stories event for March will actually be on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th. Mm -hmm. okay. So more details about that will be available in the next few days to come. But you guys should tune in and hang out with us. Um, or actually, by now, we probably have already released those details. Yeah. Keep an eye out for them. But you guys should tune in and hang out. We'll tell stories. We might make some food. We'll definitely have cocktails. And a good time will be had by all. Um, and I think we're going to try to find a mocktail recipe this time, too. For those who do not imbibe, we'd like to find, like, something you can play along with, too. Thought that would be a good time. Um, for sure, for sure. And I think that is all I have for this week. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? Um, nope. You thought, though. I did. You need to give it, like, a minute just in case. All right, then. On with the show. So unless you live under a spooky story filtering rock, you've probably heard at least a little something about Madame LaLaurie and the famous LaLaurie Mansion located at 1138 Royal Street in the heart of New Orleans. I'll include a picture of myself standing in front of it looking very, very serious. <laughs> 
This story has been stretched and published for a great many years, not to mention Delphine herself was an integral part of, as I mentioned, American Horror Story Coven. Kathy Bates plays her. She is also a national treasure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I imagine she's sitting on a dais somewhere with national treasure Dave Grohl. Yeah. That'd be a fun conversation. And then, like, Adam Sandler is just walking about. I don't give him national treasure status. No, he's not a national he's treasure, but he's just walking about. Paul Rudd's sitting with them. He is also yeah, a national treasure. That's probably, he probably brought Adam with him. We're like, what the fuck, man? You can't bring people. Yeah, and then we're like, like, never mind. You can do anything you want. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if well, you want. They took his coat on. They did on SNL. <laughs> oh. His five timers club. Coat. I know. That was funny. That anyway. was funny. Now we're just talking about SNL. Good times. <laughs> um, but anyway, if you don't know why we call Dave Grohl a national treasure, you should go back and listen to our two-part episode journey on Kurt Cobain's death. But anyway, as many of you may have guessed, Madame Lullery's story on American Horror Story was pretty drastically changed to flip the, fit the plot of the season. Nobody's making a minotaur today. I'm sorry to disappoint you all. There is also no record that Delphine LaLaurie and the proclaimed voodoo queen of New Orleans, Marie Laveau, knew each other. Yes, they existed for a while in the same place at the same time, but that hardly means they were friends. Sometimes we travel places and I don't know anybody there. It happens. <laughs> All the time. It's like, oh, you're from England? Do you know the queen? No, obviously not. It can happen. So Marie Laveau, though, is an interesting character in her own right, and I encourage you to do your own reading about her. Maybe I'll try and um, do some extra content on Marie eventually. There's no real crimes associated with her, but she is fascinating and a very, like, strong, awesome, kind of inspiring woman. I, I read her biography, and it was pretty great. Needless to say, her ver the version of her on American Horror Story was also, like, not based in truth at all, so don't take that as... Fact, it's definitely not a documentary. The only true thing about Marie Laveau in that is that she owned a beauty shop, hmm. which is why people leave hairpins on her grave to this day as tributes, which I also did when I was in New Orleans. So nice. see if I have a picture of me doing that looking very serious as well. I'll just be serious me all the time this week. <laughs> just kidding. I'll put real pictures in. Also, what remains of the LaLaurie Mansion today is not original. Like no part of that house is the original house. This just takes place on the grounds. It does look exactly the same on the outside. They rebuilt it to look exactly like the photos you'll see of it or paintings, whatever, from that era, um, with the exception of a possible change of paint color. But due to all the damage it had suffered, which we'll find out about shortly, that house needed to be just rebuilt from the ground up. Nothing remained. Right. Now, I'm going to tell the best version of this story I can. And there are a lot of versions. There are also a lot of exaggerations and some lies, really morbidly fascinating lies, but they're lies nonetheless. So um, I'm going to tell you things that have only been reported by official sources and confirmed and or confirmed, I should say, with police reports. Whether police and bystanders and newspaper reporters of the time exaggerated, I can't tell you. I can't talk to them. That is a mystery for the ages. But the things I'm telling you have a concrete basis. So, 
The majority of the story takes place in the early 1830s, though in a moment I will go back and give a complete history of Delphine LaLaurie herself, I thought it would be nice to have Leslie introduce the time period we're going to land in to get us ready for what's to come. So why don't you um, give some maybe like fun facts stored in your head about the early 1830s? Yeah, sure, sure. Great. Um, yeah, so uh, when I visited the 1830s. In your time machine. Yeah. So um, fun. Yeah, it was a decade that featured several significant events in America and across the globe. A steam locomotive raced a horse. The U.S. president beat up a man who tried to assassinate him. Great. Darwin visited the Galapagos Islands. And tragic siege at the Alamo became legendary. The history of the 1830s was marked by railroad building in America, opium wars in Asia, and the ascension to the British throne of Queen Victoria. During the decade of the 1830s, German-American immigrants introduced the tradition of decorating Christmas trees during the holidays in America, too. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. So, uh, some fun facts, all right? Hmm. May 30th, 1830, the Indian Removal Act was signed into law by President Andrew Jackson. The law led to the relocation of indigenous peoples, which became known as the Trail of Tears. Oh, tragic story, that. Yes. August 28th, 1830, Peter Cooper raced his locomotive, the Tom Thumb, against a horse. (laughs) Was it a little little (laughs) locomotive? The Tom Thumb? Yeah, the Tom Thumb. That's cute. The unusual experiment proved the potential of steam power and helped to inspire the building of railroads. Ooh, if you want to hear more about General Tom Thumb, you can listen to our episode on Sideshows. Yes. December 10th, 1830, American poet Emily Dickinson was born in Amherst, Massachusetts. Mm. Do you know also what Amherst was the birthplace of? Emily Dickinson, so also sadness? No. Oh. Something happy. What is it? Muggle Quidditch. Get out of here! At Amherst College. People running around playing Quidditch on the ground. Yes, and also I know that because... You played it, didn't you? Well, and I was um, at Springfield College. I filed to allow Quidditch to be played at our school. Of course you And did. I had to talk to the people, the uh, the founders of it. Uh-huh, at that feels Amherst. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if anybody <laughs> wants to play Quidditch at Springfield College, they have to contact me first so I can sign yeah. over the rights. You better thank Leslie yeah. if uh, that's a goal in your life. There you go. I did nothing with it, though. You didn't busy. actually play the Quidditch? You did I all of that and you didn't play the Quidditch? It, it wasn't hard. Leslie! I just contacted somebody. They said, here are the rules. I think Have fun. you now need to go there and be like, well, I'm entitled to do this and yeah. just play a game of Quidditch. <laughs> Guys, I own, I can do this. I, do I don't this. go here, but I I'm own, gonna. I own Springfield College Quidditch team. You do. So get over there and start Quidditching. Yeah. Anyway. August 21st, 1831, a local slave rebellion in Southampton County, Virginia, led by Nate Turner, a black slave, kills 57 white citizens. Turner would be captured on October 30th of the same year, tried and hanged on November 11th for his part in the uprising. Just sad. Yeah, that is sad. Summer 1831, Cyrus McCormick, a Virginian blacksmith, demonstrated a mechanical reaper that would revolutionize farming in America and eventually worldwide. December 27, 1831, Charles Darwin sailed from England abroad the research ship HMS Beagle. While spending five years at sea, Darwin would make observations of wildlife and collect samples of plants and animals, which he brought back to England. And immediately ate. Yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> Thank you. That's my favorite fact. Uh, I've told it on like 18 episodes <laughs> that he ate everything he discovered. <laughs> June 24th, 1832, a cholera epidemic uh, ravaged Europe and then appeared in New York City. Mm. So that was, like, pretty panicky for everybody. Yeah. Last week, the plague was in New Orleans. Now cholera is in New York. Yeah. It's a sick time to be alive. There's always something. There is always something. We're living in a plague today. Yep. On November 14th, 1832, Charles Carroll was the last living signer of the Declaration of Independence. To huh. who died? <laughs> the last living one to die. Yeah, ever one one of them he, never died. Yeah, just lived forever. Yeah, but he was the last. He was the last living signer. Died. Yes, in Baltimore, a Maryland in Maryland, um, at the age of ninety five. Wow, he had a good run for somebody sure alive at that point in time. That's a yeah, long that's life. That's why he was the only one left. They all the other ones, and except for that one who just never died. Yeah, we don't talk about him. We don't. <laughs> no. <laughs> that's that's Doctor Who. <laughs> oh man, I would right. That would who, make sense. Who knew he was there? Yeah. November twenty ninth, eighteen thirty two. American author Louisa May Alcott was born in Germantown, Pennsylvania. Hmm. Uh, Andrew Jackson was elected term president for a second hmm. time. Slavery was abolished in British Empire. That was that's that was good, nice, but not here. No. January 30th, 1835, the first assassination attempt on an American president, a deranged man shot at Andrew Jackson in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol. The rotunda? Yes. Mm. <laughs> Jackson attacked the man with his walking stick and had to be pulled back. The failed assassin was later found to be insane. Of course, bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson was like, I'm going to beat him down yes. myself. <laughs> exactly. Word. The summer of 1835, a campaign to mail abolitionist pamphlets to the South led to mobs breaking into post offices and burning the anti-enslavement literature in bonfires. The abolitionist movement changed its tactics and began seeking to speak out against the enslavement of people in Congress. Hmm. Yeah. Very good. On November 30th, 1835, Samuel Clemens uh, was born in Missouri. Do you know who Samuel Clemens is, Holly? Mark Twain. Good job. Thank you. December 29th, 1835, the Cherokee tribe is forced to cede lands in Georgia and cross the Mississippi River after gold is found on their land in Georgia, which results in the Treaty of New Encota. Uh, and then the tribe had to be forced to move westward. Oh. Right? It's just like, we found some gold, so now you have to leave. It's a bad time for indigenous people. I know. It makes me so sad. I don't know that there was a good time for indigenous people in this country after we got here. No. In January of 1836, the siege of the Alamo began at San Antonio, Texas. Hmm. I've never been to the Alamo. I hear it's smaller than I think it would be. On June 20th, 1837, Victoria became Queen of Great Britain at the age of 18. And Whoa. thus starts uh, the Victorian the, the era. The Victorian era. Yes. There you have it. <laughs> November 7th, 1837, abolitionist Elijah Lovejoy was murdered by a pro-slavery mob in Alton, Illinois. It's a good name, Elijah Lovejoy. Mm -hmm. Charles Stratton was born on January 4th, 1838. Holly? Yes. Who's Charles Stratton? Oh, no. I don't remember, but I know it was like a sporty thing. Did mm -hmm. he invent basketball? Was it a sporty thing, Holly? He was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut. It's not basketball, then? That's the only memory mm -hmm. I have of you him. You already mentioned his name. I don't know. General Tom Thumb. 
Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's who that is? Yeah. Funny. I never think of him by his actual name. That's terrible. Yeah. Who's the guy that invented basketball? You um, talked about him like three times. <laughs> and I should know this by heart, but I don't. But it was invented in Springfield, Massachusetts. See? I, I'm, <laughs> that's going back pretty far, too. Yeah, it is. June 1839, Louis Daguerre patented his camera in France. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And I, again, apologize to our French listeners for that butchering of the last name. French foibles us every time. July 1839, a rebellion of enslaved people broke out abroad aboard the ship Amistad. Oh, like the movie. Yep. And then on February 15th, 1839 in Jackson, Mississippi, the first state law allowing women to own property is passed. Yes, women own yes. some property. Right? And uh, so that was like the 1830s. Shit was happening. It was a busy time. Yeah. What going on in the 1830s? We were like trying to figure it out and we weren't figuring it out well. Some people were figuring it out better. It's not always the and, case. Uh, yeah. What a time to be alive. <laughs> If you were that one signer of the Declaration of Independence. Um, So now we're going to rewind a little bit and start in the very beginning of Delphine LaLaurie's story. Marie Delphine McCarthy was born on March 19th, 1787. And in some places, this is shortened to McCarthy. I believe the name was shortened in like when they immigrated from Ireland, but not 100% sure. Uh, Delphine was born and raised in the city of New Orleans though her family originally landed in Louisiana's Spanish-occupied territory. Her father was Louis Bartholemy McCarthy, who emigrated from Ireland to the United States in 1730 during the French colonial period. Her mother, Marie Jean, was a French woman, and and her family lived in the, quote, white Creole community in New Orleans. Delphine was born as one of five children in her family, The McCartys were very active members of New Orleans society. Both of Delphine's parents were prominent in the town's European Creole community. Her uncle by marriage, Esteban Rodriguez Miro, was governor of the Spanish-American provinces of Louisiana and Florida during 1785 through 1791. And her cousin, Augustine de McCarty, was mayor of New Orleans from 1815 to 1820, So Delphine grew up relatively wealthy and socially popular. Her family was doing pretty good. Must be nice. Yeah, right? Must be nice. And and that's not really incredibly common when we're talking about people who committed heinous crimes. Usually they have some kind of like insanely scary traumatic childhood, but Mm -hmm. you know, not always. It is, however, reported that Delphine was exposed to the effects of the Haitian Revolution in her early childhood, which, if you don't know what that was, here is a brief summary. The Haitian Revolution was a series of conflicts between 1791 and 1804 between Haitian enslaved people, colonists, the armies of the British, and the French colonizers, and also a number of other parties. Through the struggle, the Haitian people ultimately won their independence from France and thereby became the first country to be founded by former enslaved people. It's pretty cool. Way to go, Haiti. Yeah. Um, But in this rebellion, Delphine's uncle was killed by his own enslaved people when she was just four years old. This event is said to have made some Louisiana slave owners at this time harsher and less empathetic, which kind of goes... In opposition to Louisiana as a whole stance on slavery, which we will get to in a few minutes. But remember, there are some people that were like that this rebellion 
affected enormously and it made them like way angrier. Right. And this might not have like affect directly affected Delphine, I should say, in the sense that like she was witnessing it or anything, but it was her family. And it certainly could have affected the way that she viewed enslaved people or they the way they were presented to her and the subsequent opinions she formed based on this. So that could have easily shaped the way she treated slavery in general. So one might think that seeing a whole nation of enslaved people rise from the depths of horrific cruelty to take back their agency and freedom might make a person like pretty inspired and see these people in a new and better light. But no, not old white guys, never. They just like doubled down on how awful they were to black people. And they made their children hate them with even greater intensity. Mm. So that's fun. Though Louisiana had arguably the lightest code noir of the time, which I will explain later, but for now, let me just say that slavery codes were a state-to-state issue at this point in time, and Louisiana's was called their code noir. And even though theirs was tolerant by early 1800 standards, there were still plenty of people in the state's borders who did not agree with it and who had these way harsher opinions and who had their views you know, touched by things like the Haitian Rebellion. And this is the story of one such person. And make no mistake, this is an ugly and uncomfortable story. And it's often told through the heavy filter of like white savior style rhetoric. Mm. In most retellings of this story, you're going to hear a lot of, but Louisiana was great. Louisiana allowed uh, black citizens to be free sometimes. Louisiana allowed some black citizens to make money. Louisiana... It had some lighter rules, but by no means would you sit there and say, like, they were changing the world. It was totally different in Louisiana. All those people were great. Right. That's not what this is. And New Orleans citizens are going to come out, some of them looking really good at the end of the story, and some of them deserve it. But I want you to remember that it's been retold a lot of times and probably in their favor. Okay. So there is that to deal with. Moving forward. On June 11th, 1800, when Delphine was just, I have 14 here, though I have read in some other sources that she was 13. It doesn't really matter. That's round about the age. Delphine married her first husband, definitely an arranged marriage, obviously, and his name was Don Ramon de Lopez y Angulo, a high-ranking Spanish royal officer. So a good marriage, good, good arrangement for her and her family. In 1804, Don Ramon was called to Spain to attend some business, and on the way there, with a very pregnant Delphine, which Mm -hmm. makes her, you know, 17 or 18 and pregnant, Don Ramon unexpectedly fell ill and died. The pair had only gotten as far as Cuba. Delphine returned home to New Orleans and gave birth to her first daughter, Marie Borgia Delphine Lopez Iangulo de la Candelaria whom she called Borgita or Bora, because let's be honest, the whole thing is way too long. So long. She probably forgot half of it. She was like, I... She, I bet you she just mumbles it. Like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Borgita. That's it. Lordy. I do like that they didn't have their first child till later, though. Yeah. It was she a wasn't, couple years. Yeah, she wasn't like, you know, 14 giving birth, I thankfully. wonder if they, like, waited a little bit. I wonder if she couldn't. Yeah, well, I wondered that, too. But I wonder if they maybe waited till she could, too. Here's to hoping. 
I mean, yeah, we're, <laughs> I'm going to hope they waited to even try until it was an option, but probably not. Um, maybe when she got boobs, you know, that'd be nice. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, at 13 or 14, some of us didn't have any of that. Like, I couldn't have had babies at that age. I hope he waited till she got her braces off. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> oh, God. So though she was just 19 years old and already a widowed mother, Delphine was known for being, not that this, I don't know why I phrased this this way. She was still known for being really beautiful and sociable. Not that you can't be those things when you're a widowed mother. That's very right. silly. She was just like, my life is about to start. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Delphine was, um, well, as I said, she's like a popular socialite, even though she was like in mourning for a little bit. Mm-hmm. So it came as no surprise that she was remarried just four years later which would have been an acceptable window of mourning back then, um, to another wealthy and influential man named Jean Blanc. Delphine and Jean were married in June of 1808 and would go on to have four children together, three girls and a boy. The family lived in a house at 409 Royal Street, which is currently a store called Ida Mannheim and Pew Antiques. And it looks amazing. Cool. It is cool. Look it up. If the structure that this store is in is original, then that means that this property was uh, a townhouse of sorts, and it would have been a lot closer to city-style living than, say, like, a big, sprawling estate. Mm-hmm. Though it was closer in location to Royal Street. I don't, I mean, New Orleans was probably a little more spread out back then, but it, it just looks more like something you'd see in, like, a street with other houses than, like, an independent estate like she would go on to having. Okay. The Blanc family lived a relatively unnoteworthy and normal life, meaning Delphine and Jean, until Jean also passed away in 1816. So that's two husbands now for Delphine. After that, Delphine, who was only 30 at this point in time, spent the next nine years as a widow, quietly raising her children and begrudgingly getting by on her own. Her husband had left them a sizable fortune because she did not marry poor guys, um, and therefore her family was able to keep up with their relatively high standard of living even after his death. But comfortable and quiet living was not really for Delphine, just Mm. like not her style. Right. So in 1825, a 23-year-old physician named Dr. Leonard Louis Nicholas LaLaurie, boy, they favored a long name back then, I know, arrived in New Orleans, which I don't think you can even be a physician at 23 right now. I'm pretty sure you need more training to become a doctor than one can even have at 23 years old right now. Unless you're some sort of prodigy, but that was not the case back then. Also, I'm sure it would have come up in my research if Dr. Lollery was a prodigy. Right. Child doctors are, like, pretty noteworthy. Right. Doogie Howser. Doogie Howser. I was going to say. that's the end of them. Right. (laughs) Name another child doctor, anyone. Please. If you do, I'll do a whole segment on them. If you can <laughs> no, find was, me another I child was doctor. I someone to yell it out. <laughs> yeah, right. In the crowd. Let's hear it. Yeah. Um, anyway, but if you will think all the way back to last week, we are currently in a time period where doctors need only the training they acquire from another doctor they kind of know. That's not exactly the whole truth. You did need an education, but considering we didn't have a whole ton of medical knowledge back then and... Hospitals didn't even exist. There yeah. were no hospitals. Doctors just came to your house or they, they visited you on site. There was no place where you went to get medical treatment. Right. Um, so medical schools 
while they did exist, were a lot more like a trade school. They, they taught like a short supplement and pretty much only wealthy people could afford them. And then this would lead into your apprenticeship with another doctor. Hopeful students would attend classes in a small academic building for eight hours a day, attending four lectures in that time. The whole program lasted just two 16-week semesters. So 32 weeks, you're a doctor. Congratulations. Okay. That's less time than it takes to gestate a baby. <laughs> yeah. And if you will think even further back, we are in the era of Burke and Hare, where medical students were so desperate for practical learning that schools would buy bodies for dissection from grave robbers. Not the best time for medicine or medical learning. This was also a time of heroic medicine, which meant that nearly every problem was either bled, blistered, purged, and if that didn't work, you cut it off. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you learned a few things. You had very, very minimal practical training. And then you were sent out into the world as an apprentice, wherein you would be doing medical things. Wow. So, yeah. In any case, shortly after his arrival in town, um, this very young but legitimate doctor set up shop. Um, I have. I want to interject here. Sure. I quickly looked up the youngest doctor. Tell right? me, please. I'm excited. I thought maybe I'd find it from, like, you know, this era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this one's legitimate. Uh -uh. He was born in 1977. I cannot say his name. Uh, Bala Murali. Okay. Krish, Krishna. Okay. Ambadi. Okay. Um, he goes by Bala okay. or Bala, I probably. I don't blame him. He's an Indian American. Okay. Um, and he became an optometrist. I Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Optometrist. So an optometrist at the age of 17. What? He graduated Harvard. He wrote a book about. He co-authored at the age of 11, co-authored a research book on HIV and AIDS titled AIDS, The True Story, A Comprehensive Guide. He graduated from New York University at the age of 13. No. He graduated from Mount Sinai School of Medicine with a distinction at the age of 17. Oh, my God. Dis what? Uh, dis yeah. Mm -hmm. um, he was scored a 99% on – he was scored over – 99% on his national medical boards, national medical boards, yeah. He became See, the youngest doctor in 1995. Wow. See, I would still have an argument that a person that young does not have a full grasp on, like, consequences and risk aversion and, like, I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, I guess if you can get all the certifications, you can, you can do it. That's pretty wild. His father was an industrial engineer and his mother was a math teacher. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. So I guess you could potentially have had a child optometrist. And he is only 44 right now. Oh, God, right? I'm 40. Sense? I've done nothing with my life <laughs> compared to this guy. Jeez. Wait, does that make sense? 1977, 44. Yeah, I was 81. Yeah. Okay. That was fun. Yeah, there you go. Back to Delphine. She originally brought her daughter Pauline to see Dr. LaLaurie for problems with her back, but it would turn out to be 38-year-old Delphine who alone would return to see Dr. LaLaurie time and time again. Ooh. She's had so many medical problems. Mm -hmm. I bet she came out of there with a back problem. Uh <laughs> I see what you did there. She was just so sick. So sick. 
<laughs> Probably had like her leg hurt too. She had like something in her throat. <laughs> I tripped. <laughs> so anyway, she was going to the doctor all the time to to get her back problems. And for those of you keeping score, this is Delphine bagging herself a man that was 15 years her junior. Yes, girl. And a doctor. So I know she's doing not too bad. That was me snapping in case anyone couldn't tell. Them. Like, what is that noise? Or John's just like, what the hell is in that mic? So the two at first began an affair that resulted in Delphine giving birth to a son, Samuel Arthur Clarence LaLaurie, out of wedlock, <gasps> mm-hmm, which was Shit. a big no-no back then. Mm-hmm. But soon after Samuel's birth, though, the pair got married. Oh, okay. So, like, real quick, real quick. <laughs> We're married. It's fine. It's fine. Don't uh, don't worry. I don't know why they wouldn't, like, right after they found out she was pregnant. He's a doctor. He could probably tell pretty quick. And she's had four other children. She's going to know that she's pregnant. Yeah. Oh, well. I guess they just weren't. They didn't feel like it. Yeah. I don't know. In 1831, Delphine independently purchased a property on 1140 Royal Street, which I think I said 1138 in the beginning, and that was a typo on my part, I believe. So apologies, guys. 1140 Royal Street. And she then had a two-story mansion erected complete with attached slave quarters. So this would be a separate building. Okay. It should be noted that this house was um, in Delphine's name alone, and she managed it by herself almost entirely. Mm. Because her two previous husbands were quite wealthy, and so that would have left her not needing his this other guy's doctor money, whatever. Right. He was just, you know, 23 and a doctor. Mm. All right. <laughs> Delphine took great pride in decorating this huge home lavishly and ornately. You'll see pictures of it. The house is quite big. Um, and in 1832, Delphine, the good doctor, and an assortment of random family members— then also two of Delphine's daughters and the son that she and Dr. LaLaurie had together all moved into this large house on Royal Street. Now, the random family member thing was not uncommon at, uncommon at that time, by the way. If you had a large house, you were probably going to get some relatives staying there with you. For sure. I mean, that's probably still true if you have a big enough house. I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Delphine's older son um, and two other daughters, however, seemed to have just gone somewhere else. Where I didn't really go too far into that, there, um, the nearest I can surmise is that they were actually adults, and so they had probably begun families of their own. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the three remaining children, Dr. and Mrs. LaLaurie, lived an outwardly charmed life. They would throw big, ornate dinner parties, and they were always out and about, being social and looking good. Um, but inside the sprawling mansion, things were not as charmed as they might have seemed. First, Delphine and the good doctor separated for a time in 1832. Delphine petitioned the first judicial district court for a separation from bed and board of her husband. It's a very formal way to put it, in which Delphine claimed that Dr. LaLaurie had, quote, treated her in such a manner as to render their living together unsupportable. Oh. I don't know exactly what happened. It just rendered their living situation unsupportable. And these claims were backed up by her son and two of her daughters. So people said, yeah, they were having a bad time. And whatever it was that went down between the two of them, though, didn't really stick because Dr. LaLaurie was soon back in the house. Only a temporary separation. Well, he was just a boy. You can't leave a boy outside in the cold. A young boy doctor. (laughs) Now, Delphine is at this point stuck in what seems to be kind of an unhappy marriage. 
and she decided to fill her days with lavish parties, who wouldn't, Mm -hmm. and take her aggression out on the people she had enslaved. Yes, this is the South in the 1830s, and people, it was common for people to have in larger households, and even maybe some smaller households, I'm not very sure, enslaved people. So, the ugly part of American history, but it is true, and we should not not talk about it. Taking your aggression out, however, on enslaved people, um, even in, at this pre-Civil War time in Louisiana, was still a crime. During their two years in the mansion, so only two years, which is funny because they're so famous for this house and they didn't really live there that long, mm-hmm. 12 enslaved people were reported dead. And that is an astronomical number, even for a time when hygiene wasn't super important and yellow fever was just kind of crawling all over. Wow. Yeah. These 12 deaths included a woman named Bon, who was a cook and laundress, and her four children, Juliet, who died at 13, Florence, who died at 10, Jules, who died at 6, and Leontine, who was just two when she perished. Now, mind you... 12 is only the number of reported deaths. Mm. And a lot of these, the ones I just mentioned, are children. So there are those who say it is possible that some of them were taken by childhood illness. Again, not a time when medicine is at its finest, and um, especially for Black citizens. And, I mean, they probably weren't looked after very well. So it's possible that some of them are illness-related. It's also possible that they're other cruelty-related. We don't know precisely. So even more deaths actually went on the property unreported, and these bodies were unceremoniously buried on the grounds. This is a fact that authorities would later discover in an investigation on the grounds. So after everything happens, they kind of start poking around, and they find way more people just buried out on, like, the lawn, basically. Wow. Yeah. Wild. Delphine and her husband's mistreatment of their enslaved people, it grosses me out to even say that, it's horrible, um, did not go unnoticed by their community either. Visitors to the La Lorie house began reporting that the La Lorie's um, slaves appeared, quote, singularly haggard and wretched. One visitor reported that the La Lorie's enslaved people um, were going about their work still bloody from recent whippings. Oh. Yeah. But this is not a first for Delphine. She had actually been in in trouble for the mistreatment of enslaved people in the past, and her community had not forgotten this. So they're like, seeing this thing, these kind of things happen and going like, this is not, she's done this before. Mm. As it turned out, she had been reported and penalized in 1828 for cruelty. Because you see, slavery may have been legal in Louisiana at this time, but quote, mistreating your enslaved people was not which seems suspect given the brutality that enslaved people faced in the United States at the time. And I assure you, the term mistreatment was very loose by today's standards, but it was a lot better than other state laws. Yeah. So again, while I'm not going to say Louisiana was a perfect safe haven, it was better than other places. Why would Louisiana be different? Well, Louisiana's Code Noir, a.k.a. Black Code, a.k.a. Slave Code, was introduced in 1724 and was based on earlier codes developed in French Caribbean colonies. The French laws about slavery gave greater rights to enslaved persons than their British and Dutch counterparts. There are not a lot of French United States about. Mm Kind of like just Louisiana. 
Yeah. At this point, I think. So that's why Louisiana was a little bit different. The rest of the states followed laws mostly developed by English colonies, and as I mentioned, Dutch. Louisiana wasn't purchased by the United States from France, in fact, until 1803, by which time their laws and codes were pretty firmly in place. And France had incidentally abolished slavery in 1794. Okay. So they're coming from a place where slavery is on the outs, basically. Right, right. Just to give you an example of this code, code noir... Point 20 of Louisiana's Code Noir dictated that, quote, these are quotes, slaves who shall not be properly fed, clad, and provided for by their masters may give information thereof to the attorney general of the superior council or to all the other officers of justice of an inferior jurisdiction and may put the written exposition of their wrongs into their hands, upon which information and even ex officio should the information come from another quarter, the attorney general shall prosecute said masters without charging any costs to the complainants. It is our will that this regulation be observed in all accusations for crimes or barbarous and inhuman treatment brought against slaves by their masters. So, this means that an enslaved person can report cruelty to the attorney general or anybody else who can report to them and their master can be prosecuted at no cost to the enslaved person. Okay. Which is vastly different than anywhere else in the United States. Yeah. Owners of enslaved persons were also required to baptize them in the Catholic faith and give them Sundays off for worship. Again, day off, very different. Enslaved persons were allowed to marry with their master's permission, and separation of families was not permitted. However, Louisiana's law differed from the law in the Caribbean in several negative ways. Interracial marriage was prohibited. Enslaved persons could no longer be freed at their master's discretion. Instead, the superior council's approval was required to grant all requests for freedom. So you can't just free them. You have to go and get permission to do so. Freedom could not be granted out of mere generosity. The council required an extraordinary reason for freedom. And then there's point 32, just in case I've been too nice about Louisiana, that states, quote, the runaway slave who shall continue to be so for one month from the day of his being denounced to the officers of justice, so runaway missing for a month, shall have his ears cut off and shall be branded with the flower de luce on the shoulder. And on a second offense of the same nature persisted in during one month from the day of his being announced. So if it happens again one month later, he shall be hamstrung and be marked with the flower de luce on the other shoulder. On the third offense, he shall suffer death. Wow. So let's not give Louisiana too much credit because that's what I hear every time I hear this story and it drives me a little crazy. It yeah. was marginally better, but not all the way to good. I don't even know if we're at good now. There is still so far that we have to go when it comes to racism and generational trauma, but that is another story for another day. It is, however, important to note that the LaLauries were known breakers of this code. So, as the lady of the house, Delphine, was attended to by all manner of enslaved people, um, because we're still at a, at a time when women of standing had ladies' maids to attend to their every whim. I suppose that was kind of more of a custom in Europe. This might have been a job for enslaved people in America. Delphine wouldn't probably do as much as button her own dress or turn down her own sheets before sleeping with them. She had constant access, frequently to these enslaved 
girls mostly, and they were frequently isolated from all other members of the household. And she would take her sadistic temper out on them regularly because this would create an opportunity, obviously. So, Leslie, maybe you could tell us a little bit about, um, just for a little break, because all of that was pretty intense. How would a rich lady like Miss Delphine LaLaurie prepare herself for a party? Would she do anything for herself? Who would help her? Please set a stage for us. She would literally do nothing other than stand and sit as needed to. God. (laughs) Probably with nonverbal cues, too. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You wouldn't even have to talk. Yeah. She might lift her arms to get, like, her dress, Mm -hmm. like, on or something. Uh, I found a cool, like, little YouTube video about Ooh. a a woman in the 1830s getting dressed. And Tell she had, like, it. her, like, little maiden. So, and it was for an evening dress, which what's interesting is, is I forgot for a second that we were in, like, New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans. Yes. Um, so, in the rest of America, everybody was trying to get away from um, French-inspired looks. Interesting. Yeah. So they, like, didn't, even, like, French aristocrats, like, didn't want to be known as, like, they didn't, they were kind of, like, hiding that fact. I guess that would be very different in in New Orleans. Yes. So prior to the 1830s, the style was a little bit more, like, um, Greek and Roman inspired. So you'd still have, like, an empire waist, but it was a little bit more flowy and light. Floaty dress. Mm Mm-hmm. And then 1830s, we start to get more of what we're going to see for, like, the Victorian era. Got it. Um, So we get a little bit bigger. Put a bonnet on it. Got it. Earlier, the fabric starts to get a little bit more bold and fun for a while. But especially where Delphine is, she's probably going to have, like, some really eccentric pieces. I'm sure. Yeah. They're going to be really pretty. And then once the Victorian era happens in the 1837 and on, that's where we take from Queen Victoria, who was, like, a little bit more modest, and she, like, didn't really like to go on the fashion trend, so everything gets a little bit more mild Boo. for a while. But still huge and, like, crazy, but just fabric-wise, not as, like, I mean, eccentric. God forbid a woman be comfortable. You have to yes. be able to not move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so here's what they would be doing with her. Ooh, so, please tell me. The 1830s shift or chemise, mm. right? Is that how you say it? Yeah. Chemise? Was made in linen or more usually cotton, and the neckline was wide and the sleeves short to accommodate the latest fashions. That's a comfy dress, like we discussed last time. Mm-hmm. We love a utilitarian dress. Yes. So, um, under drawers were still not commonly worn, but when they were, they were of the open leg sort made from cotton back waist with laces or buttons, so that would be what the maid would be putting on her, her handmaid. Yeah, this is like there's no crotch. It's just on the side because you have to be able to like crotch to go to the bathroom. Yes. So. <laughs> You'd have stockings that were made of silk and had decorative details at the ankle to conceal the seam join. And then uh, there would be like embroidered uh, feature that they called clocks Ooh. on there. Um, and again, uh, this would be where she might put on her stockings or someone would put them on. So she would sit down and then she'd Just either like, put them on. Here's my foot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ew. And she might put them on while they're getting like the thousands of other pieces ready to apply to her. <laughs> yeah. Is this in the time of buttons or is everything pinned on? Buttons. Okay. Still, still buttons and uh, buttons and pins and laces. Like just, I, I Every, just everything. Before, we have everything now. Oh, we're doing good. So like just before this. Everything was straight pinned into place. If there yeah. were no buttons, like your apron and your everything mm-hmm. that was put together was like straight pinned into place. 
I think we have some buttons in here. Nice. Yeah. No being jabbed with a pin. Mm-hmm. Um, ribbon garters were tied beneath the knee to hold the stockings in place. Cute. Mm-hmm. It was really cute. Um, and to ensure a smoothly contoured ankle, because you don't want that thing slipping down God, and you look no. all wrinkly down Give me there. a saggy ankle. Mm-mm. Ugh. The stays were made from a stiff cotton fabric shaped by means of gores inserted at the bust and hips. This almost looked like a, it looked like a corset, okay. this, right? Um, and corsets were coming back into style at this point too. So she might have like a regular corset, right? Or the um, this was just like a piece over her like little. Right. Little undercut. Gotta have a lot of layers. Mm-hmm. A lot of layers. So many. They were stiffened and decorated with cording and had a wood or metal busk at the center front. It's a flat piece like a board in the front. Though some had a button front opening for ease of dressing. Well, well, well. That would be nice of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're dating a 23-year-old doctor... Right. Gotta have a button in the front. And then the stays were laced down the back to fit and finished with hand-worked or metal eyelets. Mm. Mm. So again, she'd be doing nothing. She'd just be there sucking in. <laughs> Holding the bedpost. Yeah. <laughs> to protect the hand-worked eyelets from where a tape might be wound through the eyelets. Tedious. So tedious. To give the desired bell shape of the skirt and to balance the wide sleeves. Many petticoats uh, were worn. So fluffy. Yeah. Almost at the era of the hoop. Not yet. Mm -hmm. Some would be starched and stiffened with cording, which could extend from the hem up to hip level. Full-length petticoats were also worn, especially over front buttoning stays, in order to smooth the outline. Like like an ankle. Um, a small three-floused ruffled bustle would be added for an extra lift at the back. So, like, again, they'd just be, like, they're just constantly, like, throwing these things over top layer of Layer after layer. Just yeah, they're layer all their own individual layer. piece, too. Yeah, and it just ta- it takes, like, an hour to get ready. Yeah, a dress is not a dress. A dress yeah. is, like, 15 pieces that you put together. Yeah. <laughs> you assemble it on your body, too. Uh-huh. The large fashionable leg of mutton or gigot sleeves uh, would require support to maintain the puff. So, like, the you puff. You got stuff your leg of mutton sleeves, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, as, the, as um, the 1830s went on, the sleeves would get puffier and puffier and puffier. Uh, and then, until like, you like, consume your head. Yeah. And then um, once the Victorian era happened, they still had that, but they, like, kind of started to control some of the sleeves yeah, again. Get and, it under control. <laughs> and also, I think the Victorian era, you had a lot more, like, long sleeves. But in this era, you'd have more short ones, and uh, then you'd put gloves on. Yes, of course. Mm-hmm. Cover up those arms. Cotton-sleeved puffs or plumbers into the sleeve head were also added uh, by pushing them through the armhole and tying them into place. Like shoulder pads, only bigger than your whole arm. Gross. Yes. Ugh. Crazy. Uh, The waist was slightly above a natural waist and was straight or finished with a slight point a la Marie Stewart. Oh, so this is like now she'd have like the dress on. Um, was, that part was often made from often made from lace as well. So now they'd get the dress on over top of all this stuff, and oh then they God. would start like throwing it on and tying everything together tying and into it place because it's all different pieces. Mm-hmm. And then they were usually fastened at the back and c- concealed with hooks and eyes. Can't see those fasteners. No. Ugh. 
wide belts were also really popular and there'd be like a little like ornate piece pretty on the front as well i'm sure she had some like really nice pieces oh i'm sure she did and then the uh, maid would also throw on some shoes which were usually flat with a square toe and were often tied with ribbons um, Ew, she could have also, I know, and flat Ew, like, oh. god <laughs> it's like the most unflattering shoe shape ever <laughs> Um, jewelry uh, would be added next and so she would also not be putting on her jewelry someone else would of course not and they'd probably be trying like several different pieces if they hadn't just picked them out previously Um, these would include earrings and necklaces something that suited that like wide neckline right a nice statement piece Mm -hmm. and then typical for the 1830s hairstyle is uh, they'd have the sides sides of the hair would be curled into ringlets okay while the back of the hair was pulled up into curls, loops, or braids. Pretty. Yeah, they liked a lot of curls this time and a lot of a lot of braids. Yeah, and you can't be, like, curling your hair with a plug-in curling iron either. That's no. not a thing. Yeah, so how do they heat that up again? In it's the like, fire. In the fire, right? So a curling iron would be, like, a fixed piece. It would yeah. just be, like, an iron with the – it doesn't, like – it's not, like, a clippy thing like we have now. And then they would wrap it around the hot iron and release, and then they put it back in the fire. Okay. So that's how you heat anything up. That's that's how they would have done it um, then. Or they would have used rag curls. You could have mm-hmm. used overnight like pieces, scrap pieces of fabric to wind your hair around and leave them that way. Or pin curls where you shape it into a little mm-hmm. spiral on your head and pin them in place. Um, but yeah, no matter how you slice it, they, they had like eight miles of hair. Yep. Because they were not cutting their hair. It was down no. to like their knees. And it was always like elaborately braided and curled. I know, which is so wild. It must have taken. Forever. It was extremely I mean, labor intensive. Else to do, I guess not. Yeah, not there. And somebody else was doing it for them. Yeah, guess that's helpful, huh? Yeah, hairstyles were often decorated elaborately with flowers, ribbons, combs, or pearls, depending on the occasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fashion for absurdly wide puff sleeves was short-lived. That's good. I don't like those. Yeah, I'm glad they ended, um, but, <laughs> no good. but it only lasted to 1837, oh, and right. then Queen Victoria was just like, fuck that. She's like, these are gross. No, yeah, thank you. No, thank you. All Delphium would probably be doing to get ready for this party is standing up to put the dress on and then sitting down to get the shoes on. Like, it would just be but a back be and forth. But she'd be alone in this room with these, like, maid-type yeah. women for a long time. It would probably be a... a Minimum an hour, and maybe if you, two. I'll have a picture of her in um in the photo suite, and she has the biggest sleeves I've ever seen in my life. Just yeah. FYI, they okay, yeah. are huge. Well, she should because that was like the richer you are, the b- bigger your, your sleeves. sleeves. Yeah, I always say <laughs> the more pillows you got to stuff in there. Yeah, man. Well, Ooh. that would have been a time. So after doing all of this like insane stuff before, well, actually while. Before one of her many dazzling high society parties, because she loved to throw a super fancy dinner party and invite every wealthy person she could find within earshot. That was kind of her thing. She was a total socialite. Um, And Delphine had a young girl attending to her named Leah. And she had Leah brush her hair, which I mentioned was, there was like a mountain of hair on every human back then. People weren't cutting it. Leah brushed carefully but hit a snag, and Delphine became enraged. She reached for the whip that she kept next to her dressing table, aggressive, and went after Leah, who was justifiably justifiably terrified. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this, but Leah's like 13. She's a a little girl. Yeah, Yeah. a lot of the girls that would like serve the woman of the house, even enslaved women, like 
that would serve inside the house were frequently younger, the people that were like doing these things. So Leah had suffered a lot of punishments in the privacy of her bedchamber, Delphine's bedchambers before, and this time she got, she was just really frightened, and so she began to run, screaming to the second-story balcony with Delphine chasing behind her with the whip in hand. At this point, Leah was trapped because Delphine was standing before the doors and she was out on the rail of the balcony, and she was faced with the choice to either face her mistress or jump, and she jumped. Mm. And um, this is a good story. The thing is, according to historical records, we can't really confirm all of it. I wish I could say that no little girls ever jumped off the roof of the LaLaurie Mansion, but that's not true either. Um, in reality, the little girl who plummeted to her death was just, um, in some accounts, eight years old. In some accounts, she's still 13. But no matter how you slice it, it's like a little girl. Okay. The neighbors who witnessed this, because yes, there were witnesses to this event, so mm. it definitely happened, said that she was eight. But how can you tell that by a child running around on a roof? That's just what they said. Right after they watched, neighbors watched this happen, child jumping off the balcony of this estate, they called the damn cops. Good for these fucking neighbors. Mm -hmm. The not true part is that she didn't like stand there and make a choice. What happened was they saw a child run out onto the balcony with Delphine chasing her behind with a whip, and the kid ran full speed at the balcony and kind of tumbled over it and just fell. So I don't know that she actively, like, stood there, looked at the situation, and chose to turn around and end her life. I think it was more of a she was trying to escape, and either she fell over the railing or she's a kid and didn't realize how high things are that you won't survive and thought she could jump and keep going. Yeah. Oh, that's so sad. It's awful. It's absolutely awful. Um, and I think, like, not realizing the fall would kill her is even worse. Yeah. Because she thought she was getting away. Um, none of this can really be confirmed. We just have the neighbor's side of the story, which, like they said, they saw her be chased. They saw her go over the balcony. That's what they mm. saw. Now, the first version of this story with the hair combing and the snag and the angry thing, we, we can't confirm that in any way, shape, or form. But it is exactly like one I told a few months ago. But back then, we were talking about the blood countess, Erzabed mm -hmm. Bactari. And I'm sure there were lots of well-to-do angry broads with a mile and a half of hair. They had someone else brush every couple days back then. But the events are just so similar that one has to wonder if maybe an exaggeration wasn't created about Madame LaLaurie based on a story someone had heard about a faraway countess. There is a lot of blurring in their stories in some retelling. That's where you get her using blood as beauty treatments. Mm. They're just taking the countess's story and like adding it to Delphine LaLaurie's to make hers more gruesome. Okay. I don't think you need to be. Really all we can tell you is that she was angrily chasing a young enslaved girl and that girl died by falling off a balcony. Mm. So awful any way you slice it. As I mentioned before, this was in the early evening before a party that the LaLaurie's were set to have. So it's not like a fictional 12-year-old girl plummeting, screaming from a balcony to her death in the courtyard below would go unnoticed. Neither then would this actually real 8-year-old or 13-year-old, depending on what record you read. As I mentioned before, the neighbors called the damn cops. It can't just be raining scared little girls. We all have limits. That night, according to the legend, the little girl was hastily buried on the property as others had been before her. But the next day, police came knocking on the door of 1140 Royal Street looking for answers. 
Delphine was warm, gentle, and kind to the officers. She explained that there had been an accident the night before where a young enslaved girl had fallen from the balcony. They, she then showed the officers where she buried this young girl. And this, huh, well, this just didn't really sit well with the police. Um, Delphine's story checked out. A little girl did fall from the balcony. She did die. And yet she has er erased all of her own responsibility in this matter. Now, if you re will recall back to my original mention of the death on the deaths on the LaLaurie's property, you will recall a 13-year-old girl named, I believe it was Julieta, which could get lost in translation pretty easily as Leah. Mm. Leah's in the name. They could have even called her that for short. We don't know. So if this is the same girl, she was 13. Or it wow. could have been her younger sister too. Historically, you can trace this. They did find this girl. This was her name. She was dead. She did die and was buried on the property. So there could be weight to this story. Sadly, though, the police couldn't prove that Delphine had definitely been responsible for this young girl's death. It's not as though the neighbors had security cameras. They did the only thing they could at the time, which was to send a lawyer over to the Royal Street Mansion to remind the LaLaurie's about the laws on the mistreatment and blatant murder of enslaved people. You know, that's kind of against the law. And that, you know, if they did that, you could get a fine and a stern talking to. <laughs> Again, better, not good. Right. The police may not have had any initial evidence with which to bring charges against Delphine, but they did find her version of the story, as I said before, to be pretty suspicious. So they did a little more investigating, taking like walks around the mansion's grounds and kind of observing the situation there for themselves. The police found that the whispers around town were correct and the LaLaurie's enslaved people were all emaciated and in various states of recovery from obvious beatings and whippings. They also found that Delphine had kept her cook chained to the kitchen stove. Wow. Not okay. The cook's young daughters would also be routinely punished and beaten when they tried to feed the other enslaved people at the LaLaurie estate. This fact is also often repeated about Delphine's own daughters. People say that she beat them because they were trying to feed the enslaved people on the property. I think that that is a version of this story that they just altered a little because there are no other reports of that, but you might hear that in a version of it. But the state of these people can be backed up with medical and legal rec records mentioned earlier. So these things did happen. This investigation led to the LaLaurie's being tried and found guilty of cruelty in a court of law. Hmm. The LaLaurie's were ordered to surrender or sell all of their slaves and then were fined for mistreatment. Like I said, fined. Good, not, not good, better. Delphine was more clever than this, though, and so she sold these enslaved people to her family members and friends, who then just immediately sold them back to her. Uh. Yep, but that was far from the end of it. After this ordeal, Delphine LaLaurie made a huge show of being kind and generous to black people, both free and enslaved, when she was in public. She knew what, she was, what was being said about her and had to counteract it, just not in a meaningful way. However, visitors to her home would still report that the LaLaurie house was not a happy one. Delphine and Dr. LaLaurie would argue constantly, often spending the night in separate rooms. Delphine was aging, and she became frustrated by the youth and beauty exhibited by her young daughters. And by the spring of 1834, the LaLaurie mansion had become a tense place. Man, oh man. Mm-hmm. On April 11th, 1834, everything came to a vicious apex. 
a fire broke out in the LaLaurie mansion. Ooh. I know. Like a real fire? Yeah, big old fire. Oh, Just like flames and everything. Bystanders were able to quickly fetch the police and fire department, but not as quickly as the roaring blaze spread, and soon the main house and outbuildings were all on fire. Not a lot of fire prevention back then, everything very flammable. <laughs> Madame LaLaurie was seen attempting to remove particularly expensive pieces of furniture, while numerous enslaved <laughs> people remained trapped inside the burning building. Jesus. So she's like saving her armoire and leaving people inside. And I mean, like, they could have helped. Stop it. Well, what I mean, though, is, like, instead of keeping them trapped... That's like, true. She could she have just been, like... she was so concerned like, about the furniture... Yeah. You, you she had a whole bunch of people there. Yeah, why not just, like, let them escape and also get your dresser? Everybody yeah. wins. Yeah. Poor planning. I know. Very poor planning. This is fucked up. It gets so much worse. When the police and fire marshals arrived, they pushed their way into the main house first, and there they found the cook a 70-year-old woman chained to the stove by her ankle. So they didn't learn. They just fucking did it again. And she later said, the cook, that she had set this fire herself as an attempt to complete suicide because she could no longer bear the punishments she was forced to withstand herself and to watch on others. She had gotten older and her duties were more difficult now. She often couldn't complete them and so the beatings had become nearly constant. She also said that she was terrified she would soon be sent to, quote, the uppermost room. Oh. I know, sinister. Damn. She told the police that there were other enslaved people in this room, which was located out in the slaves' quarters, and that people who went up there never came back down. Ooh. Yeah. So that's different, too, in the show, because it was like a basement in the show. Right? Yeah. No matter how you slice it, this is an attic. There mm. are some retellings of it that are in the main house. The documents, the newspapers from the time state that it was, like, the second floor of, like, like an attic space, actually, mm -hmm. which was probably meant for storage in a, the outbuilding that was supposed to be slaves' quarters. Mm. Somebody got messed up. Who knows who it was? But it is on a second floor. So once the firefighters hear this, they're like, oh, shit, we got to get into this building because there's clearly more other people trapped in there. E again, everything is on fire. Every building yeah. is on fire. It just spread so quickly. Um, and by this time, that building is furiously burning. But when they got to the door, they realized it was locked from the outside and required a key to gain entrance. Oh, my God. It's also not legal. No. And so they began, like the um, bystanders and firefighters, to desperately search for these keys. They located the LaLaurie's in the process, asked them to give them the keys. The LaLaurie's said, no, no, you can't have those. We're going to let those people burn to death. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. As reported in the New Orleans Bee, which was a newspaper of the time on April 11th, 1834, quote, bystanders responding to the fire attempted to enter the quarters of those enslaved to ensure that everyone had been evacuated. Upon being refused the keys by the law lorries, the bystanders broke down the doors to the quarters and found seven slaves more or less horribly mutilated, suspended by the neck with their limbs apparently stretched and torn from one extremity to the other. And they also claim to have been imprisoned in that state for some months. That is a quote from the newspaper. Okay. One member of the makeshift rescue squad was Judge Jean-Francois Canon. Judge Canon told authorities in his official statement that he discovered an enslaved woman wearing an iron collar 
and an older black woman with a large, deep head wound who had become too weak to walk. Again, this is an official statement made by a judge to police. Mm. Backed up. Judge Cannon also said that when he questioned Dr. LaLaurie about those enslaved on the property, Dr. LaLaurie replied in a, quote, insolent manner that, quote, some people had better stay at home rather than come to others' houses to dictate the laws and meddle with other people's businesses. Oh. Are you kidding? By 1836, so this is two years after these events, there was a version of this story circulating that had added a little more, which is probably, if you've heard the story, the one you have heard, claiming that the enslaved people were emaciated, which we heard they were before, and showed signs of being flayed with a whip, um, that they were also bound into restrictive postures and wore spiked iron collars, which kept their heads in a static position, meaning at no point in time could you rest your head or move it to the side without a spike piercing your neck. Ow. Yes, this is some medieval shit. This version of the story, however, is printed in a book and some local newspapers, again in 1836, and it quickly became canon, but it is suspected that a few of these later claims are sensationalists' exaggerations. Not that they were necessary, the crimes were bad enough on their own, but it didn't stop there. Soon, the woman with the head wound that was reported in the newspaper by the police was then said to have an exposed skull with maggots festering in the surrounding flesh. Hmm. So hard for me to write that down. Hate maggots more than anything in the world. Um, there was also another added report of a woman chained up in a cage who had had all her limbs broken and reset at odd angles so she resembled a crab. Jeez. Starting to get real weird and fanciful. Then storytellers added an old man was also locked up in there and he had a giant hole in his skull from which a long stick protruded that Madame had used to stir his brains. All right. You can't do that. I know. Some people, brains are solid matter. How the fuck are you stirring brains? No. Good he luck. would just be dead yeah. at that point. <laughs> I mean, this is like, that's some Jeffrey Dahmer type shit where you're like, anyway. Some people claim that Delphine was drinking the blood of the enslaved or using it as a beauty treatment to remain young and beautiful. But again, this is really just mixing up her story with the blood countess. Right. They have similarities to be sure, but they are different people. Mm -hmm. Now, Delphine has since been portrayed as a woman desperate to hold on to her beauty, as a dabbler in voodoo, as a mad scientist. And in reality, she was none of those things. She was simply an unforgivably cruel, manipulative, spoiled, and entitled white woman who was able to get away with far too much for far too long. Mm -hmm. So the crazier things that you will read, like the person with their limbs reset at like crab angles and the brain stirring and stuff, those never appeared in this story until two years after the events occurred. So I am inclined to believe they are exaggerations. Okay. But up until that point, those things are true. Mm -hmm. So we're back in 1834 now. After all of the enslaved people have been successfully removed from this house of horrors, they are then brought to a local jail, which sounds a lot worse than it was because, remember, I said that this was before there were any hospitals. So there is no other place that is a large, open, heated room with a bunch of beds and clean sheets and a kitchen so that they could be fed and given water. Mm. So while it may sound like they had been arrested or taken to jail, really the jail was just the only facility they could bring them to that might hold them all. And then this way, doctors were, all, were called in to attend to their various extensive injuries. Some people could be saved. Not all of them. 
Police officers were also on the scene. So everybody's at this jail now. People are lined up in beds. There's doctors taking care of them. And police officers are also there taking statements, detailed statements, from as many people as possible, both victims and the rescue party. They all go to this location. So this is actually pretty efficient for the time. Okay. Three of the seven victims died soon after making it to the jail. Not really super surprised. Uh, Meanwhile, the fire at the house was still burning out of control at this point. And people had begun flooding to the jail because the victims of this just atrocity had also been, quote, made available for public viewing, which is disgusting. Jesus. Yep. The same newspaper, the New Orleans Bee, reported um, that by April 12th, up to 4,000 people had attended to view the enslaved people, quote, to convince themselves of their sufferings or because they just wanted to look at some shit. So word traveled fast. Not only had people witnessed the effects of the LaLaurie's cruelty at this point, nobody wanted this incredibly dark mark on their community, which, if you'll remember, was considered pretty progressive at the time. So the LaLaurie's were not what New Orleans wanted to stand for, and so its citizens wanted them to answer for what they had done. As soon as the victims were out of the scene, the fire quickly changed from a rescue into a riot. As the flames were extinguished, people rushed through the doors to destroy anything that was left. And in the midst of the chaos, the LaLaurie's ran. So it was so chaotic, nobody saw them leave. Mm. They ran all the way to Paris, in fact, where it seemed they both remained for the rest of their lives. How much of that was spent together remains kind of up in the air. Um, Dr. LaLaurie, having been born in France, still had family there, so he had made sense that that's where they went. Dr. LaLaurie died on October 15th, 1862 in Paris at the age of 59 um, and was buried in a cemetery there. The remains of several more undocumented enslaved people were later found buried on the grounds of the Royal Street Mansion. And because of the lack of documents, we will never really know who these people were. Mm. As for Delphine, while well, she stayed in Paris but wanted desperately to return to New Orleans later in life. Her children, however, were like, you absolutely cannot fucking do that. Yeah, you are. What? You can't come back. You can't go back there. They knew the city was calling for her blood and that she would not have survived more than a day or so once she was within its walls. So, in Paris, she stayed. Her children's reported that she was almost always in a bad mood. <laughs> Poor thing. Nobody gives a fuck. Yeah, I don't give a shit. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, France had abolished slavery almost 40 years prior to Delphine's hasty move there. And so the opportunity to resume her horrific practices was thankfully not present. Mm. The circumstances of Delphine's La- Delphine LaLaurie's death are seemingly unclear. In 1888, George Washington Cable recounted a popular but unsubstantiated story that Delphine had died in France in a boar hunting accident. Oh, all right, very Game of Thrones. In the late 1930s, Eugene Backus, who served as sexton to St. Louis Cemetery No. 1, which is the famous one in New Orleans where you can visit Marie Laveau, he served as sexton there until 1924, and Eugene Backus discovered an old cracked copper plate in Alley 4 of the cemetery with the inscription that read, Madame LaLaurie, nay, Madame Delphine McCarthy, Décidé à Paris, le 7th of December, 1842, and other French stuff that I won't insult by reading. The English translation of the inscription reads, Madame LaLaurie, born Marie Delphine McCarthy, died in Paris, December 7th, 1842, at the age of 55. 55. 
Nice try, Delphine. The French archives of Paris confirm that Delphine died on December 7th, seven years later in 1849, at the age of 62. Okay. The LaLaurie mansion was torn limb from literal limb in the events surrounding the fire and was left barely standing or in a state of ruin and abandoned for nearly four years. So it was just a pile of trash for four years. Mm. Nobody wanted to touch it. It was a gross and crumbling monument to the atrocities that had occurred therein. It was also a crime scene for quite a long time, considering they were still digging up bodies. Uh, a few years later, in 1838, it was rebuilt by Pierre Trastor, uh, and that is when it assumed the appearance that it has today. So over the following decades, the new building had been used as a public high school, a conservatory of music, an apartment building, a refuge for young delinquents, a bar, a furniture store, and a luxury apartment building. Awesome. And then... In April of 2007, actor Nicolas Cage bought the LaLaurie Mansion. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> right, right, that right. right. For $3.45 million. Damn. Yeah, mortgage documents were drawn up in a way that um, Nick Cage's name didn't really appear on them, though. Cage told Vanity Fair, we found this out in a Vanity Fair article, that, quote, I once lived in the most haunted house in America, the LaLaurie Mansion in New Orleans. Used to belong to Madame LaLaurie, a well-known 19th century socialite and serial killer. I bought it in 2007 figuring it would be a good place in which to write the great American horror novel. Oh, my God. I didn't get too far with the novel. Classic case. <laughs> I can't. So good. I know. While Nick Cage didn't write the great American scary horror novel while living in that house, other people certainly have given Delphine's story a fair swing. Nick Cage also didn't get too far with the house as he ran into financial troubles and the house was seized by the bank in 2009. He does still own an obelisk-shaped grave in in um, St. Louis Cemetery Number 1, though. Okay. It's okay. insane looking. Or no, it's a pyramid, sorry. Hmm. Either way, it stands out and it's nuts. Um, so the LaLaurie Mansion is now owned by television and film music composer Michael Whalen. According to most New Orleans ghost tours on warm spring nights, you can see Leah's ghost standing on the second-story balcony, forever locked in the moment that she decided to jump, which we discovered really isn't how it happened, but still. Leah's ghost isn't the only tortured soul reported to remain on those grounds, though. The LaLaurie Mansion is widely considered to be the most haunted location in New Orleans, with many of the souls who perish there forever locked in that scorched piece of land. There are, of course, plenty of stories. And here are just a few short ones from the New Orleans City Ghost Tour website just to close this out. Sure. First, during the years that it was a girls' school, that's what this one is about, the LaLaurie Mansion was for a very brief time in the early 1870s a school for girls. And I did fact check all this, by the way. Actually, it was one of the first integrated schools in the city of New Orleans. So that's pretty radical for the 1870s. Mm -hmm. And things went pretty well to start with. The students seemed to get along. They People were occasionally saying mean things to one another, but there was no violence. Everybody was pretty eager to learn. But a bunch of old angry white men couldn't let that happen, and one spring day, they stormed the school and demanded that all the black students be evicted into the streets, and they were, by terrified and weeping teachers. Yeah. So they stood, these old white guys stood outside the building and screamed, like, armed to the teeth that they had to bring out all the black students. And so sobbing, the teachers and all these young black girls walked out into the streets. So scary. It's awful. It's fucking awful. After that, the school at 1140 Royal Street was converted into a strictly all-girls black-only primary school. Okay. Which black girls are notoriously 
not given equal footing when it comes to education. So it's nice that there was a school, but still. Within a short amount of time, reports of mysterious physical assaults began to be reported by the young students. And I don't mean by an actual person. Young girls would approach their teachers with tears streaming down their faces, roll up their sleeves, and expose the flesh on their forearms where they would show them, like, scratches and bruises and fingerprints. And the teacher would would ask, like, who did this to you? What happened? And the answer was always the same. That woman, they would say. And then they would go on to describe a woman who looks suspiciously like Madame Delphine, who at that point had passed away. But that was hardly common knowledge at this point. Remember, her death was kind of shrouded in mystery and happened in Mm -hmm. Paris. We still don't know exactly how or when it happened. Now, while there were no written accounts of these mysterious assaults, they were said to be passed by word of mouth from one student and teacher to the next. It is hard to believe that these, like, six- and seven-year-old children would have previous knowledge of the events that occurred in that on the grounds of that house. So I don't know that they could have been making up this story. Teachers, maybe. Who knows? That's maybe the ghost story. they might have heard this. I mean, like, older Teachers kids. Teachers may have, yeah. Older kids might have told them. Perhaps. Definitely possible. Then, uh, although not everyone believes in psychic mediums, this story is directly from the ghost tour of New Orleans, um, there was one particular instance that made made known to the Ghost City Tours team in which someone on one of the ghost tours happened to be a medium. Throughout the entire night, she had sensed things about various locations before the tour guide even told the story that happened. But within the first sight of the LaLaurie Mansion, the medium sucked in a deep breath and said, such sadness. As she rolled back on her heels, pulling out her phone, she proceeded to snap a picture of the mansion. The bricked-up window, she went on, that's not where the little girl fell out. The tour guide paused simply because she hadn't gotten to that part of the story yet. Nevertheless, she recovered quickly and said, no, you're right. Story goes on that Leah fell into the courtyard. Um, so the Lollary Mansion also, you'll see pictures of it. And if it's hard to see this part of it because there's a huge fence around it. Like it's it's totally barricaded for the public to get in. But the windows do open to like a totally bricked courtyard, which I forgot to mention earlier. So if you fell from them, you would be hitting concrete. Mm. Um, the tour guide went on. I suspect that someone did some interior decorating but wanted to maintain the symmetry on the outside of the home. In the next few minutes, the medium experienced such heavy emotion like the weight that had set like weight that had settled down upon her shoulders. She said she sensed the spirit of a young boy who liked to play pranks on the living and the spirit of a little girl who was often nervous. Did she feel any helplessness or anger? The tour guide asked. No, was the response. Whatever happened then with LaLaurie does not visit this house any longer. Mm. Uh, one of their tour guides was lucky enough to experience something at the haunted house on Royal Street. They say lucky, of course, is a term used loosely. On one occurrence, our guide was giving a ghost tour. They were at the LaLaurie Mansion, standing just directly across from the front door. To their right, another group was discussing the tragedies of the LaLaurie Mansion some 50 feet away. But there, under the quiet moonlight, the story of 1834 was slowly unveiled. All of a sudden, our guide felt a tug on her messenger bag draped over her shoulder. She stopped amid her story and twisted to look over her shoulder, convinced that she might find a pickpocket or someone intent on stealing her things. Quote, right in the middle of a tour, she exclaimed as she regaled us with the story. Again, I didn't write this, you guys, so if the wording is a little awkward, I'm sorry. (laughs) No, it's good. No one was there, however, so she turned back around and got into character. No less than 10 seconds later, she felt the tug again, harder this time, a sharp yank. Once again, she whipped around, but no one was there. This time, she told her tour what had happened, and their faces, she said, were priceless. No doubt hers was, too. 
Two weeks later, at the corner of Governor Nichols, which is a street, and Royal Street, our guide was out on the streets again, bringing another tour around. The LaLaurie Mansion, of course, was the main hit. She had positioned her group under a set of street lamps burnt out for weeks. She launched into the story, but the minute she said the name Leah, the lamps flicked on. Everyone in the group paused, a few yelping in delight. The guide went on with the show, and when she said the name Leah again, those same lamps blew out and the light was gone. Yeah. So, those are all of the stories that occurred within the LaLaurie Mansion and a brief history of Delphine LaLaurie. Yeah. Arguably, one of New Orleans' most famous attractions and ghost stories is this house, um, which is really funny because no one has capitalized on it. Most locations like this, you can tour. You can't get near this place. You can stand on the street outside of it, but you can't even see in the grounds. Everything is covered. Like, all windows are heavily curtained. All the courtyards are gated with big, heavy, like, gates. Like, you can't Mm. see anything in there. Um, There are some pictures online of, like, how it's been redesigned. It's just somebody's, like, super beautiful home. Right. But no one is ever there. So if you go to New Orleans, I don't know if you'll have the same experience from your tour guide, but ours told us, like, we never see people inhabiting this house. It is always empty. Hmm. So it's really kind of strange. So, yeah. Wild. Well, thank you, Holly. You're welcome. There's our Delphine LaLaurie. So nice. Toast. Toast. I guess to Leah. Yeah, to Leah. And to everybody else who suffered under Delphine and her husband. And to Nick Cage. He suffered in that house. I mean, <laughs> he tried so hard and he just yeah. couldn't make it happen. I know. But yeah, to, to everyone, Delphine hurt. Yeah, seriously. Listen, you guys, I cannot put myself in the place of this week's victims. It's not fair and it's not okay. What happened to those people was an atrocity far beyond our comprehension whatsoever. And me, as a white woman, should not be speaking to it at all. So I'm not going to. I'll end instead like this. And if we were owed a karmic debt and went on a boar hunting trip in Paris... We would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. It can't just be raining scared little girls. We all have limits.